Hello and welcome to episode 96 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. This month we are covering December 2021 and we're going to go over some EU rights issues, a bit on deportation, a bit on asylum, we're going to touch on a few human rights issues and we're going to address some procedural nonsense. I mean some fascinating procedural issues of law. Um, if you'd like to claim CPD points for reading the material, listening to the podcast, then head over to freemovement.org.uk slash training and you can sign up as a member there and we've got loads of training materials already online and it's a kind of all you can eat buffet style um, uh, approach right cj over to you thanks colin we'll start in the supreme court and the issue of eu citizens claiming benefits specifically people with eu pre-settled status and whether they can uh, satisfy the residence conditions for universal credit just by flashing their pre-settled status without having to put in any other residence evidence. The Court of Appeal found last year that pre-settled status should be enough to establish your sort of immigration entitlement to benefits. Uh, that was a major ruling, but the government did appeal. And while that appeal was pending before the Supreme Court, a similar case went to the EU Court of Justice when it handed down a ruling that was very unhelpful for the claimants in this case. So when it came back before the Supreme Court in December, they basically said uh, there's no way that Court of Appeal judgment can survive given what the EU course has, has now said. So in a very short judgment, uh, the government wins. And the upshot is uh, if you have EU pre-settled status, you do not now automatically qualify for universal credit. Uh, you can still establish your entitlement, but you'll have to put in more evidence to meet these residence rules than just your pre-settled status. Yeah, not not a hugely surprising outcome in a way. I mean, first of all, I think a few of us were pleasantly surprised by the, the Court of Appeal decision. But then, as you say, the sort of CJEU judgment subsequently did seem to pull the rug out from under the, the reasoning of the Court of Appeal. So the, the outcome of this was kind of inevitable, really. We then have one of these judgments looking at EU law as it stood pre-Brexit. That is still a live issue today in some circumstances, including where people have appeals that they lodged before Brexit took effect a year or so ago. It's decided under old EU law, if you like. And this case is about extended family members, uh, such as nieces and nephews, who could be sponsored by an EU citizen to come and live in the UK if they were dependent on the sponsor. So not close family members who could more easily be sponsored, but extended family members where there needs to be dependency. In this case, you would have Bangladeshi lady hoping to be sponsored by her uncle who supported her financially, but he had only become an EU citizen after she came to the UK. Uh, he was Bangladeshi, became Italian, but only after his niece had come to the UK hoping to be sponsored. And the Court of Appeal found that that was too late. So if, if you're going to say that you were dependent on an EU citizen and therefore you had to move with them to an EU country, then the sponsor needs to be an EU citizen at the time you move. It's no good if they became an EU citizen after you moved over is the gist and that case Sabina Begum and Secretary of State for the Home Department 2021 EWCA Civ 1878. And it was Ian Halliday, I think, who wrote this one up for us. And he makes quite an important point, which the, the, you know, picking up from what the, the court says as well, um, that I think people sometimes lose sight of the wood for the trees with this to some degree and you sort of get hung up on, you know, how can the words be interpreted differently and so on. The, the point of these rules was, uh, 
and still is if you're in the EU, to promote free movement. And if it doesn't interfere with free movement, the free movement of an actual EU citizen, then, you know, possibly, you know, the interpretation that you're arguing for is is quite a difficult one to to win on. And, you know, the fact was this guy wasn't an EU citizen at the time that he moved. And therefore, it's not that surprising that, that ultimately the interpretation is that uh, it, it didn't interfere with, with EU free movement rights. Yeah, the, the underlying purpose of, of the rules uh, is, is not met by that uh, attempted interpretation, I suppose. Let's look at a pretty significant judgment of the Court of Appeal, which came down not long before Christmas. It's called R. Afzal and Secretary of State 2021 EWCASIV 1909. And it touches on a number of different issues, all of them quite technical. I suppose the common factor is that they all these issues arose in what's quite a common scenario where you've got a client whose immigration status in the UK is a bit of a patchwork. Maybe they've moved between different categories. They've got some late applications in there. Maybe they're short periods of overstaying and you're trying to work out, have they got 10 continuous years of lawful residence so that they can apply for settlement? And you're trying to maybe bridge what might look like some gaps in, in, in that lawful residence. So this uh, chap, Mr. Afzal, was had a gap of over two years between having an extension application declared invalid and then eventually getting a new grant of permission to stay. And normally, if you have an invalid application, you won't have continuous residence, um, as you would if you had a, a valid application that was just pending a decision. So that was his problem, a two-year gap. And the Court of Appeal in this case there's two, well, there's quite a number of interesting findings that Alex uh, P highlights in her write up of the case, but two in particular that are maybe worth picking out. So, first of all, what the court says is that when Mr. Afzal received his notice of invalidity that his application was invalid, that triggered the 14 day grace period under paragraph 39E of the immigration rules. So, when he made a new application, within 14 days of receiving that notice, he didn't break his continuous residence. And Alex says that's really useful because it's never been anyone's understanding, not the home offices or many lawyers, that you could invoke this grace period from the date of a notice of invalidity. So that's significant. However, and this is the second finding that's important, even though Mr. Afzal didn't break his continuous residence during that period of overstaying because he was able to trigger this grace period. He can't count that time towards the 10 years that he, he needed to qualify for settlement. So if you've got one of these periods of, of so-called bookended overstaying, uh, that is where you've got immigration permission, then you don't, then you do again. In those circumstances, you don't have to start the 10 years all over again, but you do have to deduct that period from your counting up of the 10 years. So in Mr. Afzal's case, he, he has to wait another two years or so to make up that time when he was in this kind of immigration limbo. But he didn't entirely fall out of lawful residence in the sense that he has to, to start the 10 years all over again. So I did say it was a bit technical, um, but they are important issues if you are dealing with one of these long residence cases where these there are these gaps and there's there's invalidity and um, grace periods and so on in play. Uh, Colin, what did you make of it? Well, I, and this is no reflection on Alex's excellent write-up, but I did lose the will to live sort of going over this. It's just that we've seen so many of these long residence cases on such 
weird, bizarre sort of procedural arguments. And you know, when you start reading stuff in the judgment about something being invalid ab initio and only becoming validated if the relief is granted, and, and it's just a oh, good grief. I mean, the guy's been here basically lawfully. Ten years. Can I just give him a visa? Um, and, and you know, this is this is not fun stuff at all. Um, but it's really, really important. It really sort of profoundly affects people's lives, and and yet it's turning on these weird, really obscure um, sort of procedural points. Um, so yeah, it, it's important, but um, but but not not easy and um, and not fun. Deportation. There is good news and bad news. Let's start with the good news. There's a court of appeal case which continues the more liberal trend on when it will be unduly harsh on someone's family if their father is deported. MI Pakistan 2021 EWCA-1711. Now, when this case had been in the upper tribunal, the judges found that this test of undue harshness could never be met if all you have is evidence that the deported parent is particularly important to children um, of the family or evidence of emotional harm if the deportation goes ahead. So if that's the evidence you have, then that's never going to be unduly harsh. Um, it needs to be something above that. And the Court of Appeal now says, no, no, you, you can't rule out allowing a deportation appeal if you have that kind of evidence. Um they say it would be wrong and meaningless to impose this kind of hard and fast rule that the, the tribunal tried to do. So a bit of a slap in the face for the upper tribunal there. Um, this is another of these sort of liberalizing cases that follow on from the Haiti Iraq judgment that we've talked about quite a few times, which brings us to the bad news, uh, which is that the Supreme Court has agreed to hear an appeal in the Haiti Iraq case, which was a, a court of appeal level. And I suppose there's every chance that the Supreme Court reopens this whole can of worms on what unduly harsh means. We thought we kind of had it settled with Haiti Iraq. It was sensible. Uh, it may be that the pendulum will swing back and it will be once again harder for people fighting deportation to establish this undue harshness on their, on their family. Yeah, I mean, who knows? It's it's not um, it's not encouraging, perhaps, that HA Iraq is going up to the Supreme Court. But you know, the, the the problem is that the the, the legislation itself is really badly and unclearly worded, and it's it's hard to interpret the wording of of, of the statutes. Um, and then the Supreme Court has itself come out with quite ambiguous kind of tests to reinterpret that stuff um, in in previous cases. So it's not entirely surprising that it's going back to the Supreme Court, I suppose. But I think, you know, we're reasonably happy uh, insofar as one one possibly can be given the, the statutory background with, with HA Iraq. So it's not not encouraging that that's, that's going up. But yeah, I wouldn't describe this as, as, as a more liberal sort of trend so much as a less extreme trend. I know where you're coming from on that. So it's all relative, um, I suppose. Yeah. It's, exactly. It's all relative. I mean, th this, these deportation rules are incredibly harsh, incredibly harsh. And the impact on children is awful. It's not that um, the HA Iraq approach is a particularly liberal, nice, kindly, child-friendly one at all. It's just less extreme than the approach that the tribunal 
and the Court of Appeal have followed in in, in previous cases. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Um, I, I yeah, I, I don't know what what sort of timing we're looking at. Um, permission was granted just at the end of December, I think, wasn't it? Or was at least was published just at the end of December. I don't know what the lead in time is for for a hearing and a judgment, but it might well be towards the end of the year, or maybe even sort of early early the following year, I guess. Yeah, I think we can expect the hearing to take place this calendar year, but maybe not necessarily a judgment, depending on how long they want to ponder the issues. Uh, There's another deportation case we wanted to mention from the Upper Tribunal, and it's not been reported or anything, but the facts are really remarkable. It's about a man called Remy Akinyemi, and he was born in the UK, and he has never left the UK ever in his life. He has quite a serious criminal history, and he's not a British citizen despite being born here. So the Home Office has been trying to deport him to Nigeria, which is the country he's a citizen of, even though he has never been there ever, or as I say, anywhere outside Britain in his life. And it's been quite a legal saga. There's been not one, but two Court of Appeal decisions on different legal issues in 2017 and again in 2019. And it's only now after, I think, seven years of uh, appeals that the tribunal has arrived at a final decision, which is basically you can avoid deportation in very compelling circumstances, uh, even for quite serious criminal offending. And if this case didn't amount to very compelling circumstances, then what does? So he gets to stay and... Colin, you've—I think you've been following this uh, for as long as it's been going on for for many years. Yeah, I feel quite strangely about this one because um, I, I know this guy's name and I, I know what he looks like because I've seen pictures in 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 the press and I've I've read so much about his life in the cases and the 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 stories that have been been written about him. But you know, I've never 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 met the guy and um, this this particular guy. He's he's had two courts of appeal cases um, previously. And, you know, two upper tribunal decisions. It is properly astonishing that it's taken this long for him to win his case. And you just have to think how it really underlines how harsh the statute is, but also how outlandish the tribunal and the Court of Appeals interpretation, well, particularly the tribunal, frankly, is the Court of Appeals sent it back to be reconsidered by the tribunal, but how outlandish the tribunal's interpretation of those statutory tests has been that somebody who is British to all intents and purposes and was actually born, I, I, I think it's ni- he's actually born in 1983, I think, um, just the wrong side of the commencement of the, the 1981 um, British Nationality Act. His older brother was born before the commencement and in the UK and therefore was um, born British. But because he was born after commencement, he wasn't born British because his, his, neither of his parents were settled at that time. So, you know, it, it's good to see this case finally reaching the conclusion it, it should have done, but it should have done years ago. Um, and it's a it's a really poor reflection on on the politicians who passed the laws and then I don't say it's lightly, I'm on the judges who who previously heard this case, that it's taken this long for it to, to be resolved. Let's turn to asylum. And the big news in December was a judgment from the criminal courts quashing the convictions of several people who had been at the helm of small boats crossing the English Channel. Um, there were three or four men convicted of uh, facilitating unlawful immigration who were serving sentences of between two and six years. But the Court of Appeal Criminal Division has now overturned those convictions. 
on the basis that everyone involved in these cases had just assumed that if you're in a boat heading from France to England, that journey must be illegal. And as the Court of Appeal uh, now points out, it's not necessarily. If, if your intention in, in those boats is to be intercepted and brought to a port to immediately claim asylum, then you're not committing the offence of uh, illegal entry or attempted illegal entry. And therefore, the people steering can't be facilitating uh, an attempt at illegal entry. And in these several cases, and probably quite a lot more that might maybe question future, the issue of what the intention was, whether people were trying to illegally enter or not, or, or just claim asylum legally, that wasn't left to the jury. And so the convictions were unsafe. And uh, if this sounds familiar, it's because this distinction between illegal entry and legal arrival was established in a previous case, the Kakai case that, that you wrote up, Colin, last year. And this latest decision, I think, in many ways just flows logically from that earlier decision. Um, it is Bani versus the Crown, 2021 EWCA CRIM 1958. Yeah, and l- legally, there's nothing sort of surprising or new, I think, about this case. But um, as a sort of digression, I've just been doing some, um, some immigration law history reading and... Um, yeah, I was quite surprised to to find that small boats isn't actually that new. It's just that small boats previously, back in the in, in the sixties especially, was all about um, Commonwealth immigrants um, arriving. And under the under the Commonwealth Immigrants Act, nineteen sixty two, if you landed on a beach and you didn't get um, examined by an immigration officer for twenty four hours, then um, you were free to enter. And um, you, know, you know the Home Office cooked up this weird uh sort of conspiracy charge to try and convert you know to, to try and prosecute people who were doing this and, and a house of lords case ultimately held that um you can't basically invent criminal offenses it's got to be you know quite clearly defined in statute and that that wasn't um and therefore when f- further legislation was passed in in, in 68 it, it was more clearly criminalized but yeah you had this kind of small boat arrival stuff going on but it was people who were I suppose in in the parlance of Pretty Patel, they were economic migrants in that they were coming for better lives, and um, yeah, there was a lot of anxiety about it, a lot of news reports about it. There were attempts by the Home Office to criminalise people, even though criminal law didn't didn't actually allow that. So uh, yeah, a bit of history repeating itself there. Yeah, I was reading uh, Jim Callahan's memoirs over Christmas, who was Home Secretary uh, for part of this period, and it was very striking the parallels. He was saying, you know, we, we all want to, you know, help genuine asylum seekers, but the public must be reassured that um, they're not going to be swamped by, um, well, the language used was swamped by a tidal wave of immigrants, and you know, very much. Well, I, I don't think that, but you know, the public have these concerns, and so we have to we have to address them. Yeah, and he goes down in history as one of you know the the very illiberal Home Secretaries and sort of personally responsible for ramming through the 1968 legislation in literally a week. Um, he actually wanted to do it you know, in a day, in fact, but uh, but they settled on a week. And um, of course, that was the legislation that excluded the the East African Asians and was eventually undone. Um, by a future Labour government in, in in around 2002 by by David Blunkett. So it's a big historical injustice that, that Callaghan was responsible for. Uh, returning to the present day and refugee family reunion, uh, this is where you are a confirmed refugee in the UK and you want to bring your family over. 
In this case, uh, you had an Eritrean refugee whose uh, little brother had been detained in Libya for over two years in, in the notorious conditions in those Libyan jails. They wanted to, uh, he wanted to apply to uh, bring his brother over, but the Home Office said, well, if uh, he can't, uh, the brother can't provide biometrics, that is fingerprints and a photograph, then that application is invalid. We don't even have to consider it. The legal challenge here was basically showing that the guidance on refugee family union, the Home Office policy, uh, is totally inflexible, biometrics or or no go. But the underlying regulations, that the hard law is worded differently, and, and it does permit some discretion on the question of biometrics. So the guidance has been declared unlawful to that extent, and, and we've had similar findings uh, in Recent cases on, for example, the asylum seeker right to work guidance, um, if there is discretion in the law, then the guidance needs to reflect that explicitly. The case is unreported so far, but it's SGW and Texture States Judicial Review 227-2021. Yeah, I think this is an important case. And sometimes these cases um, where a policy is declared unlawful are technical victories, but also pyrrhic victories. You know, they, they don't lead to any genuine liberalization um, of, of, of sort of practice. But in this case, we can see that they, they actually did send an official over to go and um, see this guy and and help him and take the biometrics. Um, but you do, you do think, you know, <laughs> somebody in these kind of grim circumstances where they've been detained they're a minor they're in libya there's no way physically for them to comply with these administrative bureaucratic requirements that have been cooked up by somebody in london you know how, how on earth um you know how, how on earth that's justifiable or, or moral of course it just isn't um so it's, it's it's good to see that the you know this was declared unlawful that they actually did then assist this particular person and i'm a bit more hopeful that you know, we might see a, a slightly more reasonable approach from officials on the ground than in, for example, the right to work cases where just the Home Office is militantly against asylum seekers working in, in, in any circumstances they can avoid. Um, so hopefully this will inject a bit more humanity in, into that process. But you know, that, that, might be, um, that, that might turn out to be naive and uh, <laughs> overly optimistic of me, I don't know. Well, speaking of asylum seekers working, the uh, government has released its response to a a report on this issue by the Lift the Ban Coalition, uh, which the report argued that uh, the rules on asylum seekers working should be relaxed, should be economically beneficial, not to mention humane. The uh, government basically says no dice. uh, They're keeping the rules in place. They are not convinced by any of this. Um, One slight opening is that we heard over Christmas that social care jobs are going to be on the shortage occupation list, um, which is the only shortage roles, the only jobs that asylum seekers are allowed to do if they're given permission to work. Um, so some opportunities there perhaps, but the the general policy on, you know, you have to be waiting for uh, 12 months for a decision before you could even be considered for permission to work. That is staying in place. Yeah, it's I've, I've got some mixed feelings about this, this particular campaign because the kind of um, lift the ban campaign has, has had a lot of energy and resources put into it, at least insofar as you know this sector has resources at all. It's a massively underfunded sector, but 
to, to my mind, it was never likely to succeed. But on the other hand, it kind of changes the conversation about refugees a bit, because instead of refugees just being presented as being vulnerable and in need of support and so on, it's pointing out that actually, you know, they they can work. Some of them have got skills and experience that would be really useful and so on. So and there's kind of, there are two dimensions to the campaign, even if it was never never likely to succeed. Um, but the, the thing about social care is an interesting one. I think we've got a blog post we're hoping to put out soon on that. I, I ha- I'm pessimist on this. I wouldn't be surprised if the government then changed the law on this and removed the shortage occupation route to working. That was only introduced because of EU law. And now that we've left the EU, the government might well um, decide to, to restrict the right to work um, even more. But you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Let's hope they don't do that, but we'll see. Next up, we thought we'd mention a case on carrier's liability. This is where airlines and uh, lorry firms, hauliers, uh, can be fined if they're found to have brought unauthorized migrants into the UK. And for lorry firms and, and lorry drivers, the big issue is people stowing away in the back without the driver noticing, which uh, attracts a fine under Section 22 of the Immigration and Asylum Act 1999. However, under Section 34, you've got a defense against that fine if you can prove that there was an effective system for preventing uh, the carriage of clandestine entrance and that that system was being implemented. Um, So this, you know, even if someone did sneak onto your lorry and and was brought into the UK, that was kind of despite your best efforts. So you can can avoid the fine. And we now have a Court of Appeal decision on what counts as an effective system uh, in the case of Link Spolka, and Secretary of State for the Home Department 2021 EWCA Civ 1830. Uh, now, the court does set out 11 principles that are relevant uh, to such cases, so I won't read out 11 principles, but um, just it's, it's very relevant, obviously, to take a look at if you have a carrier's liability case, in particular to do with hauliers and uh, effective system of, of lorry checks. Yeah, it's interesting. We we debated, didn't we, CJ, whether to to include this in our in our roundup. But we're both such immigrational geeks now that um, we we thought it was kind of weirdly fascinating, even though it is fairly obscure for most people. But it's um you know you can find some of this information if you sort of really go digging for it in in sort of codes of practice and guidance that the Home Office publishes. But there's never any particular reason to do that unless you're dealing with um, carriers liability stuff. And generally speaking, lawyers don't deal with it because it's more cost efficient for the carriers to just pay the fines than to instruct lawyers for for a legal challenge. So, um, you know, the fines are set at a level that, that makes it unattractive to, to instruct a lawyer quite often. So it's quite rare to see them sort of come through. But, you know, this is it's quite an interesting look at, you know, what it is that um, lorry companies are doing and also the kind of checkbox approach that the, the Home Office adopts in these things, slightly ironically, because this case turns on uh, a checklist and whether it was contemporaneous or not. Um, but, you know, that basically the Home Office applied an extre- extremely strict approach to whether uh, the code of a code of practice had been complied with, and the court of appeal is basically saying no. A judgment has to be made rather than just following this kind of checkbox approach. So yeah, it, it's it's pretty obscure, but um, also weirdly fascinating. Let's finish on human rights. The body of law derived from the European Convention on Human Rights has had a huge impact on immigration and nationality law over the years. And we see that once again in a recent High Court case involving two victims of the Windrush scandal. So here we had people who had 
moved to the UK as children. They had the right to stay indefinitely, but they couldn't exercise that right because uh, the Home Office didn't have records and they ended up stranded outside the UK for, for many years. They both then got documents confirming their right to uh, remain in the UK uh, in 2018 after the scandal had been acknowledged and, and the task force set up and so on. And they then wanted to apply for British citizenship, uh, which is presentable in the circumstances where uh, their, their lack of citizenship had meant that their right to remain uh, had been sort of denied in practice. The Home Office said, look, we'd love to give you citizenship, but the legislation is really clear that you have to have been physically present in the UK on the exact date, five years before you apply for naturalization. Um, it's a very specific uh, piece of the legislation. And we've got no discretion on this. Um, you know, It's a weird rule, but it's, it's there in black and white. And there's nothing we can do. And I think most lawyers would have agreed with the Home Office stance, actually, that the legislation did, was unambiguous. But uh, credit to the legal team representing uh, these two people, they wouldn't take no for an answer. And what they've persuaded the High Court to do is to read into the uh, British Nationality Act a discretion to waive this five-year rule if insisting on it would be a breach of uh, human rights. And that's limited, as I understand the judgment, this discretion that now exists is is limited to circumstances where it is the Home Office's fault that someone uh, was outside the country five years ago um, when they had the right to, to be here. So it doesn't totally open up um, the citizenship legislation, but it's certainly good for Windrush victims who may be uh, affected. Um, and it's just an interesting outcome legally because I, for one, didn't uh, see it coming uh, that you could rewrite the legislation uh, using the Human Rights Act effectively. The case is R. Vanriel and another uh, 2021 EWHC 3415 admin. Yeah, a great outcome for, for those affected. Um, there is an argument I, I thought in, in set out in Fransman, this Laurie Fransman's book on British nationality law, it's a Bible of nationality law. And um, I, I think Laurie suggests that there is some room for argument at least about whether there is a discretion in these circumstances because it, it, it's the act is constructed in a really weird, weird way where it looks like this is an absolute requirement, but then the Secretary of State in a in a later, in fact, I think it's in one of the schedules, has a discretion to waive certain requirements. And the argument is whether that discretion applies to this one as well as some of the other ones. You know, that, that doesn't seem to have been sort of argued or articulated. So maybe, maybe it was felt that it wasn't a a sort of useful argument to make, but um, but it's a it's a really good outcome for those affected, and it'll be that you know the the it's one of the only good bits of the um of, of the forthcoming nationality and borders bill is that um that discretion is going to be made quite clear in the legislation. Yeah, absolutely. They, they were going to change that anyway in legislation, but the High Court said, "Well, that's that's not our business. Uh, we have to deal with the uh, the laws that stands, uh, which is not human rights uh, compliant." As I've said, the Human Rights Act has been jolly important in the immigration system. So, of course, the government wants to change it uh, or reform it, if you prefer the positive spin. Uh, There's a consultation on the Human Rights Act running until the 8th of March, quite a wide-ranging one. But uh, one of the specific gripes that the government has with human rights framework is that uh, foreign criminals can challenge deportation using human rights arguments, as we know, uh, in particular Article 8, the right to family life. 
Now, this is uh, deja vu all over again, because uh, the Immigration Act 2014 uh, put in a lot of restrictions on using human rights arguments in the context of deportation. Uh, Theresa May had the same issue, and she did quite a lot about it. Um, But the consultation is kind of angling at going even further, I suppose, because it's always politically uh, salient to talk about foreign criminals and human rights, even no matter what the law happens to say in any given moment. Um, It's maybe not worth discussing the specifics of the consultation until maybe we have a concrete proposal to go on. But like, like on a broad brush level, Colin, like there's, there's three things happening here, which are hard to reconcile. So number one, the government is not pulling out of the European convention. Number two, the government wants to bring in like hard and fast rules on when people can be deported despite their human rights. But number three, the Human Rights Convention is all about individual circumstances and balancing rights and proportionality and all that good stuff. So you really can't bring in hard and fast deportation rules. So like, it's hard to see how much further you can go in restricting human rights um, in the deportation context without losing a load of cases subsequently at the European Court. Yeah, I, I agree entirely. And, it, and it's, it is hard to see how they could go any further in domestic legislation. And maybe the answer is that it's, it's partly this isn't about the law, really. It's just about politics and, and the media. You know, it's just helpful to talk about foreign criminals as far as they're, they're concerned, those politicians are concerned. And they just don't, um, either they don't know that the law is already as it is, or they just don't care. They do know and they just don't care and they're, and they're misrepresenting um, the, the situation, or maybe there's something you know more more worrying going on in that this is a kind of prelude to removing domestic um, sort of rights of appeal against deportation, or in effect removing them. Not necessarily the right of appeal, but the right of an effective appeal. You know, making it so impossible to succeed that an appeal is is, is essentially pointless. And and therefore, sort of requiring people to go to Strasbourg. And in some ways, I, I think you know politicians like Priti Patel would love that because then, you know, if they lose a case in Strasbourg, that gives them loads of sort of airtime to talk about foreign judges meddling and all this kind of stuff. And it's a kind of prelude to then withdrawing from um, the European Convention on Human Rights and, and, and things like that. It sort of sets up this kind of dynamic that there is, is quite appealing to those sorts of, of politicians, even though you know, the law's already really tough. And you know, we were already having this debate earlier in the podcast about the impact on children and and how how negative deportations can be for 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 children um, and for family spouses. Yeah, th- th- this is to, to be clear. This is exactly the uh, rules you were talking about when you were saying that deportation law is really harsh. This is the stuff that was brought in by Theresa May exactly to address these same human rights concerns, and then now it's like that never happened and it's like you know there's a problem with human rights and deportation someone should do something about it yeah it's just and it's just it's not a good faith consultation you know and i'm certainly not planning on putting any time uh, at all into to, to trying to respond to this either as free movement or through any other organization it's just it's a waste of time it's that, that you know this is not good faith it's not serious it's just about having some more airtime to talk about foreign criminals and deportation and so on. And it's not to say that the, the outcome won't be very bad. It may well be, but, um, but there's no possibility in my view of influencing that through a consultation response. So it's pretty, it's pretty depressing on, on multiple levels, you know, on a legal level, we could be looking at further restrictions. We could be looking at something that is 
either is incompatible with the European Convention on Human Rights, in which case, you know, that that's bad news and um and, and it's hard to see how that we go forward from there, you know, looking at cases going to Strasbourg, you're looking at withdrawal, or it's it's not incompatible with the ECHR, in which case, what's the point? Because it, the, the rules are incredibly tough already. So um, this is just kind of it's just a waste of everybody's space and time and effort and resources. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's a bit depressing. It's a bit depressing. So happy new year, everybody. <laughs> yes happy new year everybody and um hopefully that was useful we'll be back next month goodbye